We are in 1 Kings 19. Now, you might notice that your pack of notes is a little longer. There's a map in the back. Um, so I'm going to refer to that later. So you might want to keep that handy. Uh, and you can keep this. I'll probably bring it back out another time uh, because I found it really helpful. It tells you some of the important sites in Elijah and Elisha's ministry. But uh, many of you know the song, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. It was written by a man named William Cooper. Now, if you look him up, it's spelled, it looks like Cowper. It's C-O-W, like cow, P-E-R. I'll tell you that so you can look him up later. He's got an interesting story, but it's pronounced Cooper. Uh, he is actually, or he was actually, one of the great English poets in, in literature history. I am not a poetry expert, but those who are will say, yes, he is one of the giants of, of English literature but he was also a hymnologist, a hymn writer. He was, he was converted to Christ in his 30s while staying at an asylum after a suicide attempt. He got saved in that asylum uh, and later moved to the to town of Olney in England, which, where he became friends with the local pastor whose name was John Newton. And some of you might know that name. John Newton was a former slave ship captain who later became a, an Anglican priest and wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, among many others. In fact, uh, Newton and Cooper together wrote a, a very, very influential hymnal back in those days. It, was, it just was game-changing uh, in, in the world of the church. And Newton knew Cooper really well. He, his quote was, I can't imagine anyone having a closer walk with the Lord than Cooper. And yet... This man, uh, William Cooper, this man, this brilliant man, this strong Christian, uh, this hymn writer, later on attempted suicide again. Fell into depression. Fortunately, he was unsuccessful in taking his own life, but you know, his friend and Pastor Newton helped nurse him through that, both physically and emotionally and mentally. Um, but it's said that on his deathbed, William Cooper said, his last words were, I am not shut out of heaven after all. So there he is. His life is ending, and the Lord gives him a vision, gives him a, a glimpse into where he's headed, and he realizes, oh, I guess he will accept me. And you and I think, well, he was a Christian. He wrote these great words. Shouldn't he have known he was going to heaven? Shouldn't he have been assured of that? And how could he have tried to take his own life once he knew the Lord? We have this idea that once you know Jesus, you should be happy all the time. That that, that should give you the strength to fortify you against any, any of life's slings and arrows. And it's just not true. And it's less true for some than others. It, it is possible for a Christian to... Uh, experience, all, all Christians to experience sorrow. That's, that's a universal human experience, even among believers. But it's even possible for a Christian to experience the kind of profound discouragement that makes them uh, just barely able to function and, and maybe even want to take their own lives. So I say that not to depress you, but to say uh, that prepares you for our look at Elijah. Because last week, what we saw in Elijah was a man who was so bold that he, he faced down 450 uh, pagan prophets and one that he had had defied a, a king and a queen that wanted him dead for three and a half years and then at his moment of triumph ran a virtual marathon and beat the chariot back to Jezreel. I mean this is a superman and yet look what happens to him 
in this chapter. So let's start with uh, verse 1 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, that is, the prophets of Baal. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. It's kind of an ancient way of saying, you know, may, may the gods strike me down if I don't kill you. It's a way of taking a vow. Now, when the queen says that, you know things are bad. You know that uh, that's bad news for you. So verse 3 says, Then he was afraid. It's the first time we've seen that adjective applied to Elijah. You never see Dirty Harry in the movies afraid, do you? Or John Wayne, or any other tough guys. But Elijah's afraid, it says. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he, asked him, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. So if you look at your map, up on the the left-hand side, about halfway, about two-thirds of the way up, you'll see Mount Carmel, and you'll see the, the little indicator that says Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, and a bloody purge of Baal priests follows, okay? So that's where we were last week at Mount Carmel, right there on the coast, right there on the Mediterranean. And you see the green arrow that shows where he ran. So once he gets, he finds out that the queen of the nation has put out a hit on his life. He heads south, he heads southeast and then due south through Dothan and Gilgal and Bethel and Jerusalem. And you see down there in the purple area of Judah, you see the town of Beersheba. You see it? Just a, just, a little, just a little southeast of Gaza, which yes, that's Gaza. That's where he stopped and he said goodbye to his servant. What he was doing there was dismissing him. He was saying, listen, I'm out of business now. I'm retired. I'm no longer a prophet. I don't need a servant anymore. You can stay here in Beersheba because you don't want to go where I'm going. And then travels a day's journey into the wilderness. You see that? You see that uh, word right next to Beersheba? It's kind of diagonal, and it says Negev. The Negev was the desert. So it's south of the Dead Sea. It's, it's wasteland. He's going there to die. And he sits under a broom tree. Now, I've never seen one as far as I know, but I've seen pictures. The broom tree in Israel, they say, is quite beautiful when it blooms. But during the season when it's dormant, it looks dead. It looks like something that never had life ever. So it's, it's quite appropriate that he's under this particular tree. It's a big spreading uh, shrub, really. But yeah, when it's, when it's dry, it looks like a broom. So he goes and lays down under it. And you have to understand, I think we can put ourselves in Elijah's shoes or in his head and realize he had to have thought. After what happened in chapter 18 on top of Mount Carmel and all the nation of Israel falling on their faces and saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. There's no way they're not going to follow God now. 
And if they follow God, there's no way they're going to stand for, for Jezebel on the throne of Israel. They're going to throw her out. And if Ahab sticks with her, they'll throw him out too. There will be a coup and we will have finally, for the first time since Israel and Judah split, we will have a, a godly king. But it doesn't happen. Instead, Jezebel sends out word that he's going to die and nobody stands up for him. Nobody, nobody rises up and says, how dare you insult the prophet of the Lord who has brought us back to the Lord God, the God of our fathers. Nobody says that. Nobody stands up for him. And I think all of us can at least partially identify with how that had to hurt, how disappointing that had to be. And now he wants to die. So we go on in the middle of verse 5. It says, And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Don't get excited. This is not a German chocolate cake. This is not uh, Italian cream. I'm just going to list my top five cakes. But no, those, those are at least two of the top five. Uh, no, this is, this is bread. This is a cake of bread and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So on your map, you see uh, it continues on from Beersheba on down into the, to the, uh, to the beige part, right? That's, that's even more desert. Besides, it's also the area of the Amalekites who are really hostile. Horeb, by the way, is, this, is another name for Mount Sinai. So this is the place where Moses met God in the, in, in the burning bush. This is the place where Moses climbed to the top and met God face to face and received the Ten Commandments and spent 40 days and 40 nights with Him. Uh, so God sends Elijah for the second time in his life outside the bounds of Israel and Judah. Now, there's a message there that I don't think many people got, maybe even not even Elijah, and that is my aspirations, my heart is bigger than the little country of Israel. I care about a widow in Zarephath. I care about the people down south near Mount Horeb, even the Amalekites. I care about these people. I'm sending you there to meet with me, not just to keep you safe from Jezebel's fury, but to get right with me, to, to change your heart, to get you back on your feet again. And by the way, I don't know if you paid attention to this, but it says he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat again for 40 days and 40 nights doesn't say he didn't drink again, although that was possible. God could sustain someone if he chose. But that, in other words, God gave Elijah a supernatural strength, similar to the strength he gave him to outrun that chariot 26 miles to Jezreel. So what happens when he gets to Horeb? It says, verse 9, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, have thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. 
And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. All right, first of all, and I don't usually ask for audible response, but in this case, I just want to know, does this remind you of a story involving another biblical character? And if so, who is it? Anybody? Did anybody else stand on a mountain as the Lord passed by? Moses, there you go, right? Because Moses said, Lord, show me your face. And the Lord said, you can't see my face, but I'll, I'll pass by, I'll cover you with my hand. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock and covers me there with his hand. Right? So, and that happened at Sinai as well. And that, by the way, who was it? Who were the two men who appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Not the same mountain, but who were they? Moses and Elijah. So, it's interesting. Interesting how God does things. Uh, but what I want you to see is. Elijah wanted to see God. He wanted to hear from God. God said, okay, stand out. I'll, I'll pass by and I'll, I'll tell you what you need to know. And then he showed him several things that weren't him. A mighty wind, an earthquake, a, a blazing fire. But God wasn't in any of those. What's the point of that? Here's what I think, because the Bible doesn't actually tell us, but here's what I think. I think what God is saying is, you think you need some spectacular thing for me to be in it. You think I'm only at work when you're able to slay 400 prophets of Baal and call down fire from heaven. You think I'm only in it when I'm, when I'm giving you uh, food uh, miraculously from the, from the little oil and flour of a widow, but I'm with you all the time. I'm speaking at times when you don't expect. I don't ever shut my eyes to you. Let's put it this way, y'all. How many, how many times in your life have you experienced a hurricane? I mean, I know we live on the, on the Gulf Coast, and so hurricanes are a reality for us, but really, how many times in your life have you been actually directly impacted? You felt the wind, you felt the rain, you know, maybe a dozen at most? That's probably a, a little much. How many of you have ever, seriously, how many of you have ever experienced an earthquake? Anybody? Yeah, a handful. I haven't. Uh, how many of you have ever been in an, in an inferno, as in you actually ran out of a burning building? Yeah, not many, thankfully. How many of you have ever experienced a gentle breeze? Now, in July in Texas, you may feel like you've never done it, but that happens so often you don't even know it happens. You've, you don't even pay attention to it. And God's point is, I'm speaking to you. You just need to listen. I'm there even when you can't discern me, and that's because you're looking for me in spectacular things, and I'm there in the everyday events of life, and you need to learn to pay attention to me. So, and behold, there came a voice to him, and I think it was in that gentle wind. He says, and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek to, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. 
And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall, be, shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Notice what God doesn't do. God does not give Elijah the answers he's seeking. He doesn't say, well, let me explain to you why Jezebel's still on the throne. Let me explain to you why I didn't strike her dead or why no one rose up and toppled her. He doesn't say, here's why you're in the state you're in. He also doesn't say, you poor soul. My heart goes out to you. But what does he do? He gives him a new assignment, and he tells him he's not as alone as he thought. So here's the assignment. He wants him to go all the way to Syria. Now again, look at your map. Syria is another name for Aram. You see Damascus there? Okay, that's all the way on the other side of the map, right? That's, you're going from one outside of Israel, 40 days and 40 nights journey, just to get back into the bounds of Judah, and then you're going to keep walking all the way through the land, through Judah, on into Israel, all the way to the north until you get to Damascus. That's a long walk. And he's going to go there, and he's going to anoint a new king of Syria, which is interesting because you think, well, why does God care who's the ruler of a non-Jewish nation, a nation that doesn't even worship me? And the reason is because Hazael is going to be God's hand of judgment against the king and queen of Israel and Israel to come. Uh, so, he's also going to anoint a man, and, and you're going to see this. It actually won't be Elijah who does this. It'll be Elisha, his, his servant. But we'll anoint a man named Jehu to be the next king of Israel. Uh, and Jehu, we're going to find out, is one rough customer. So he will be God's hand of judgment as well. And he will anoint a young man named Elisha to replace him as prophet. So I have heard people say, I've heard preachers preach this message as if to say, well, because Elijah was feeling sorry for himself, God said, well, you can't be my prophet anymore. Go ahead and anoint your successor. I don't believe that one bit. I don't think this is punishment at all. Because for one thing, Elijah still has many more years to minister, and Elisha follows after him as his second-in-command, is learning from him. Uh, this isn't punishment. This is God saying, you need to get back up because there's still work for you to do. And this work is important. This work is key. But he also says, don't forget, you think you're the only one, but you're not. You are not alone. There are others just like you who are still serving me, even in this land. So let me, let me just get to the points. I don't, usually, I don't always have points on Wednesday night. Sometimes I'm pointless. But uh, what does Elijah's time under the broom tree tell us? about our times of discouragement. Because I don't know, there, some of you may be so uh, eternally optimistic, and I'm not making fun at all, because if you are, God bless you. But if you may be so eternally optimistic and mentally and emotionally strong that you've never had a moment where you were ready to give up. 
But I think most of us can identify to one extent or another. And some of you, this is your reality. This is your, you may be in the same boat as William Cooper. Uh, was, this is something that periodically, a, a demon that just haunts your life. So what does God say to us when we're under that broom tree, when we feel like we can't go on? All right, so four things. Number one, God doesn't want us to stay there. And I think it's important to note the, the question that God asks Elijah twice. Elijah, what are you doing here? I think it's similar to the question that he asked Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? Of course, God knew where they were. You can't hide from God. He was asking him, what's happened to you? Why have you, why have you grown distant from me? We used to walk side by side. Why are you out there? This is God saying to Elijah, why are you here? Why are you under this broom tree? Why are you, why are you uh, ready to give up and, and asking me to kill you when there's still work to do? You still haven't finish the work that I created you for, and it's good work, and it's lasting work, and it's eternally significant work. This is not a lack of compassion on God's fault, uh, God's part. It's God saying, I don't want you to stay under this broom tree. I didn't create you for this. We need to understand something that we all, I'd say most of us at least, have those times when we sit down under a tree and we just can't go on any longer, but we need to understand that as, as temporary, not as permanent. The danger is that you get used to life under that tree. That becomes your identity. That becomes, well, that's just the lot, my lot in life. And this is God uh, telling you, no, that's not what I made you for. I don't want you to stay there. Remember, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. You look at the Galatians 5, at the list of the characteristics that should describe every person who has the Holy Spirit in them. And guess what? If you've got Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit is in you. This, this is where we differ from our Pentecostal brothers. We don't believe in a second blessing. We believe the, the, the moment you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you and will never leave. And if He's in you, you've got love. And the second thing on the list, you've got joy. You may not have learned to deploy it or rely on it, but you've got joy, and that should characterize your life. It doesn't mean you're always happy. Remember, Jesus wept at least twice that we know of. And Jesus was without sin. It is perfectly permissible to weep. It is perfectly permissible to feel sad. It is perfectly permissible to feel afraid. The question is, are you going to stay there? Now, I, 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 I realize there are some of us who can't just snap out of it. I myself have never suffered from clinical depression, but many people I love have. And I know it's real. I can remember the first person I ever knew with that condition was a great uncle of mine. And, and as a little boy, I remember not understanding what happened to him. He was always so jovial and you know, kind of a wisecracking kind of guy. And all of a sudden, he would just kind of stare at the ground. Didn't want to talk to anybody. Didn't want to come out of his house. I didn't know what was going on. I'd never heard of this. But now I know so many people who struggle in that way. And I just want to say that God loves those people just as much as the people who are, are bouncy and, and happy and joyful all the time. And, and God understands. And there is nothing weak about admitting you need help. There's nothing weak about going to somebody and saying, listen, I can't even function and I don't know why. God does not want you to stay there. So if nothing else, if this... Uh, motivate somebody in this room or somebody who hears this later to say, you know, I'm, I'm just in a funk. I need to go talk to someone. Then it will have been worth it.
because God doesn't want you to live that way. There is help, and it is worth getting. Number two, things often seem worse than they really are. Especially when you're under the broom tree, you think life is terrible. It will never get better. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I'm not making fun of you. I mean, that's just how we feel in that moment, right? My suffering is unique. That's how Elijah felt. And granted, he had reason to feel that way because his life was in danger. He was incredibly disappointed. He thought he was literally the last man on earth, or at least in Israel, who believed in God. Now that is a lonely, depressing place to be. And God says there are still 7,000 that haven't bent the knee to Baal or kissed his idol. Now, 7,000 is not a lot in a nation the size of Israel, even if back then it was not nearly as populous as it is today. But 7,000 is pretty impressive when you consider that since the time of the split from Judah, they hadn't had a godly king yet. Since the time of the split, they'd been worshiping a golden calf in Bethel and in Dan and saying, oh, these are our gods that brought us out of Egypt. And they'd been ministered to by priests that were illegitimate. And for the last several years, they'd had a queen on the throne who was determined to drive out all worship of God. So to, to say that there were still 7,000 who refused to give in and continue to pray to the Lord is impressive. Now, I can testify as I said a moment ago, I've never actually uh, been clinically depressed, but I have had my own time under the broom tree. I, I'm not going to tell you the circumstances, because if I did, you would say, oh, Jeff, that's nothing. Why, why, did, that, why did that lay you low? Exactly. So I was 21, newly married. No, that's not the reason. <laughs> I have to say that. Yeah. But I remember, I remember praying and saying to, to God, Lord, if this is the way it's going to be and it's never going to get better, just go ahead and take me. I don't want to live this way. I remember saying that. And I, I look back now and I think, you, you fool. I mean, you had so much to live for. And besides, what I was going through then wasn't as bad as I thought it was. But at the time, I thought it was the worst the worst thing. I could never possibly be happy. Just life wasn't working out the way I thought. And the good news is, well, there's plenty of good news about that time in my life, but here's one thing. Because I had people around me who encouraged me in Christ, who prayed for me, who gave me good advice, I've had my other times under the broom tree, including since I've been here at this church. But I didn't I feel the same sense of despair. I sat. I didn't stay there exactly. I, I I went and sat down and thought, man, this is really tough. But I I didn't at the time think, oh, this is this is horrible. I hope I die. Every time since I've thought, I know this is only temporary. I know, in fact, some of the things my head's telling me aren't reality. So I'm just going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to keep doing what He's told me to do, and I believe that things will get better, and they have. So that's my word to you. You can't believe your mind all the time. In those moments when you're, again, metaphorically under the broom tree, your mind is going to tell you things are worse than they actually are. That you're all alone, that nobody cares about you, that you're worthless, that life will never be good again. And it's not true. And you have to have the maturity, you have to have the wisdom to tell yourself, I can't trust my own mind. And I know that's hard, but it sure helps if you talk to somebody.
it sure helps if you don't suffer with that alone. Because you really only have one voice in your head, hopefully. And when that one voice is telling you lies, you need to go to somebody else who will tell you the truth. And that could be, uh, that could be someone in your life group. That could be your best friend. That could be your spouse, although often it's not your spouse because, sad to say, that's often the last person you'll listen to. It could be a pastor, a minister, it could be a life group teacher, it could be any number of people, but someone you trust to tell you the truth, somebody that's proven that they, they're a person of wisdom and integrity and that you can trust that, that they won't share what you share with them with anyone else, you go to them and you say, here's, here's the thoughts I'm thinking, here's the way I'm struggling, and they can tell you, well, let me tell you the truth about you as I see it. Let me tell you the truth about the world as I see it. And that could be life-saving. So don't keep it to yourself. Things are not as bad as you think they are. Number three, when you're under the broom tree, make sure you're listening for the voice of God. Actually, listen for the voice of God all the time. I, I used to be obsessed with this idea of hearing God's voice. But if I could just hear the voice of God, I'd always make the right decisions, and I'd always you know, my life would be perfect, right? Because God will never really lead me wrong. Um, I still believe in listening for the voice of God. I, I now know that God's not like uh, a heavenly bookie, right, that you know, gives you advice on what, which team to bet on. Actually, that's not what bookies do. I don't know. I, you can tell I'm not good at that, uh, and I, I, don't have much, I don't have any experience with betting on games, but um, you know what I mean. God's not up there saying, okay, uh, here's the, you know, order the number three combo instead of the number four. Uh, apply for this job, not that one. If God has a plan, He'll make it known to you. If you're listening, great. But mostly what God does when He speaks. Y'all ready for this? Mostly what God does when He speaks has very little to do with your day-to-day -day decisions and everything to do with Him saying, let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you what you're doing right now that isn't what I want you to do, that isn't good for you. This is what I've learned about the voice of God is I go to Him with this long list of questions and He goes, Okay, but let me tell you what is on my agenda. And it's not necessarily anything that I was concerned about, but it turns out it's more important than all that list of things that I thought I needed to know. So how do you hear the voice of God? Well, that's a long, longer sermon or series of sermons, but I, I love this story of uh, long, long ago, in the days before electric refrigeration, cities up north, we don't have any experience with this down here, but cities up north, uh, people used to keep an ice house in the backyard. An ice house, as I understand it, was just a, a wooden structure with real thick walls, good insulation, and they would, they would keep the floors covered with sawdust, and during the winter, they'd get big blocks of ice and put them in the ice house, and that insulation would keep it cold, and in some places, if it was far enough north, you'd have ice into the middle of summer in that ice house. Well. In the summertime, one time, a guy was out there doing some work in a nice house, I guess fixing some leaks or whatever, and he, when he left, when he got back in his house, he realized he, was, he had lost his watch. He had this pocket watch that he carried everywhere. It was, belonged to his dad. It was very special to him, and he knew the last place he had it was in that ice house, so he went back, and he, he took a broom, and he swept all that, all that sawdust around, and he looked and looked. He couldn't find it, so he went out to his friends and every, all his neighbors. They all came over, and they, they tracked every inch of that little ice house. They couldn't find it. Well, there was a little boy in one of those houses that saw what was going on. He waited till all the people were gone, and he slipped in there, and he came out in like 30 seconds with the watch. 
I said, that's amazing. How'd you find it? It must be those young eyes. He said, no, all I did was I, I laid down on the floor. And I got real quiet and then I could hear it ticking. And that's the voice. Of, that's, that's how we hear the voice of God. You got to be quiet. You can't hear God's voice if, you're, if, if you expect him to speak on your agenda, on your schedule. Lord, it'd be really convenient if when I'm in the car uh, from between 7.20 and 7.30, because I, I can probably not listen to the radio or a podcast during that time. It'd be really convenient if you'd talk to me then. That's not the way it works. God speaks when he speaks, and he speaks how he speaks. And the, the question is, are we going to be listening when that happens? I, I heard another man say it this way. He said, God's voice, when you hear it, it almost feels like an accident. And, and somebody said, well, then what can we do? He said, well, be as accident prone as possible. Right? Put yourself in a position where you're going to hear God's voice. And that means being quiet, being still and listening. And then finally, the last thing I would say when you're under the broom tree, if you're breathing, God still has a purpose for you. Again, what does God do for Elijah? He doesn't give him a vacation. He doesn't give him a sabbatical. Although there, there's very much a place for both of those. He gives him an assignment. When Elijah is ready to die, he says, I got work for you. You ready? Because there's a long walk ahead of you. And you need to anoint this person and this person and this person. Y'all, I said a moment ago, my, my first time under the broom tree when I was 21, a lot of great things happened out of that. For me, the best thing that happened out of that is my call to the ministry. I never, ever aspired to go into the ministry. Not once. I had a completely different life plan. I have one uncle who I admire very much who, who is a pastor, and he'd gone into the ministry about 10 years earlier. I admired the heck out of him. I had no desire to do what he was doing. In fact, when God first called me, one of the difficulties I had was saying, well, I can't imagine myself being a pastor. I can't imagine doing funerals and leading business meetings and, and, and having people come and ask me questions and having me counsel. I couldn't imagine myself doing any of those things. And yet that moment, it was just clear as can be, that's what he was calling me to do. Again, what happens for you in those moments, the assignment he gives you is probably going to be something different because we don't need a church full of aspiring preachers. <laughs> but we do need a, a church full of people who are on mission from God, yeah. who know this is what God made me to do. He made me uh, to reach out to this neighbor. He made me uh, to be that one Christian in my office. He made me to be the, 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 guy, the one Christian in my foursome on the golf course or the one Christian in this group of moms. Uh, he made me to be a light. And I, I have that assignment. And I can't, I don't have time to just stay under that tree. I've got to get up and do it. It gives you a purpose. It gives you a purpose. I, I, I'll just close with this. Um, so, kind of a depressing story, but in one of the one of the camps in World War II, uh, the Nazis had the Jews uh, doing work, and it bothered them that they couldn't. This was before they'd come up with their more diabolical things like the like the gas chambers and things like that. But it, it bothered them that these Jews were taking so long to die, essentially. And they just say, oh, we work them to death all day and they just keep coming. We're not feeding them hardly anything. They keep going. And, and, and one of them, one of the more devious ones said, oh, I've got an idea. Right now you have them building things, right? 
Tomorrow, just have them dig a hole and move the dirt over here. And tomorrow, have them dig up that dirt and put it back in the hole. And the third day, have them dig a hole in another spot, move it over there. And the fourth day, move the dirt back where it came from. And they started dying quickly because they lost all purpose. What they were doing was meaningless. We have to have meaning. We have to have purpose. We can't have joy. I can't swear that story is true. That's one of those you heard in a sermon and I don't know. But it makes the point. We must have purpose. And you have a purpose. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared ahead of time for you to do. So keep that in mind. If you're breathing, God still has a purpose for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you understand when we're hurting. You understand when we're afraid, when we're angry. And Lord, when we feel like we can't go on. But I thank you, Lord, that you've given us the Spirit of God that, that brings joy into our lives. And you've given us meaningful work to do because we have a part in the redemption of the world. Lord, I pray that we would that you would prepare us for those moments when we're struggling. Lord, for people here tonight who would say, I identify with Elijah, with William Cooper, I pray that they would get the help they need. Make us compassionate towards the people we know who are in that position so that we can help them get through those moments and, and move forward and live out your purpose. Make us a church, oh Lord God, that that sends people on mission, that encourages them, that teaches them to walk with joy, and that bears one another's burdens. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.